1: The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Drones have, as we've been telling you for some years, transformed the modern theater of war and Israel has been a major force in developing them. We look at how drones are being put to use in Gaza. And one of the things artificial intelligence can do is look at the rules of chemistry and make guesses about what should exist in nature, even if it's never been seen. And an AI set to look at crystals has found more than two million new ones. But first.
2: In November, I took off from Istres, which is a military base in Southern France to fly with the French armed forces to the Baltics in a French air refueling plane.
1: Sophie Better is our Paris bureau chief.
2: And shortly after we took off at uh, dawn, we could see out of the window four fighter jets. These were Mirage 2000s, and we were all heading together to an airbase in Lithuania, which was about 1,600 kilometers away from France. Mid-flight, the fighter jets were refueled by the Airbus A330 air tanker that we were flying in and it's an extraordinary process to witness. Each pilot in the fighter jet has to hook on manually to a fuel hose pipe that is released into the air at just 10 meters from the tanker's wingtip. Don't forget we're flying side by side at high speed
0: because you're connecting, you're touching another aircraft mid-air which
2: is something you try to avoid when you're a pilot. On the flight, I spoke to the spokesman for the French Armed Forces, an ex-fighter pilot himself, and he told me all about what it's like to do this manoeuvre. You have to
0: contain your speed, you have to watch out for the environment, other fighters surrounding you very close, the tanker itself, and managing to increase a little bit of speed to get closer and closer and closer to this refueling system without ever looking at it. Because if you look at it too early, then you're going to be tempted to follow and you'll always be out of, of where it's supposed to. be. So
2: and when we were above the Baltic Sea later on, the French refueling aircraft also did this for four Finnish fa 18 fighter jets.
0: As you saw, with minimal dialogue on the radio and a perfectly timed delivery
2: of fuel, and it were two different nations. When we reached Lithuania's Shorley Air Base, the French and the Belgian Air Forces together uh, took over from the Italians who've been policing this part of NATO airspace for the past four months. this air policing mission has been going on for two decades. But since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's been reinforced and has become a much more active mission.
1: So the purpose of the mission you were on was a a kind of handover uh, from the Italians then to the French and the Belgians. But why are these non-Baltic states so involved in Baltic airspace?
2: Well, the three Baltic nations, that's Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, do not actually themselves have serious air forces. So they rely on the NATO alliance to keep their skies safe. Since the Russian invasion, NATO's reinforced these air policing operations. And at the same time, allies take part in an air shielding activity all the way along the length of the eastern flank facing Russia. So that's from the Baltic Sea in the north right down to the Black Sea. And the Airbus uh, refueling the Finnish fighter jets, so those are American-built fighter aircraft, really underlined, I think, the interoperability of NATO assets. That's something that's absolutely key to the alliance, is ability to operate with all these different nations in Europe, as well as the US, which are taking part.
1: So how much of this is practice runs and some military exercises and how much active actual policing?
2: Well, what's really interesting when you speak to both the Italians and then the French when we landed in Cholet is that this is a really active mission. In the four months that the Italians were in charge, they intercepted 60 Russian aircraft. Now, those included fighter jets, Russian bombers, intelligence, transport aircraft. And the British, which also did a four month stint at NATO's base in Estonia this summer, intercepted 50 Russian aircraft over the same time. So the French are fully ready to intercept a similarly high volume.
1: So what to make of those numbers, those numbers of interceptions over that time?
2: Well, there isn't a trend that's clear. I mean, we're not looking at something that has increased significantly since the invasion of Ukraine. Numbers are fairly stable, but they are high. And that's what's raising eyebrows at the base in Lithuania. Sometimes the Russian approaches are probably intended as practice runs. So they're exercising their long range bombers or at other times, the intelligence aircraft, the Russians will be trying to test NATO's radars, test NATO's interception times. But it's very rare for the Russian aircraft to actually enter NATO airspace, what the interceptions are doing is moving towards them as they approach NATO airspace. And that's what these French aircraft are now doing.
1: And it sounds as if they're going to be kept busy.
2: Yes. I mean, certainly from the French point of view, what's very interesting is not only that they're now on this mission in Lithuania, but... They have also deployed French forces to Romania. They did that pretty fast after the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year. They are also deploying air-crewed aerial surveillance flights on the western Black Sea coast. That's where they can watch over Ukraine's grain shipments. And what's interesting is that, you know, in the past, NATO has sometimes looked like a sort of sideshow for Paris. But now the French forces really are present across land, sea and air along the length of NATO's eastern flank in Europe.
1: So why that change in terms of France's attention to NATO now?
2: Well, obviously, the change has been the Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a different strategic assessment by France of what matters and what our collective interests are in Europe. But I think what's also interesting is that this French presence in NATO, a very active presence, just happens to coincide with a time when it is drawing down its troops in the African Sahel. And over the past few years, we've seen a, a series of military coups in countries like Mali and Burkina Faso, Niger, and French forces have either been kicked out of those countries where they've been previously conducting counter-terrorism operations or have decided to leave. They're soon leaving Niger at Niger's request. And if you look at 2020, for example, when France had over 5,000 troops on these missions in the Sahel, it's now got only uh, 1,500 and that figure is going to uh, reduce even by the end of this year.
1: So is this just simply a matter of France having more resources to dedicate now that it's drawing down in Africa?
2: Well the French military says that operationally these two trends are unrelated and actually they involve different assets in the African Sahel it's mostly boots on the ground French soldiers conducting operations there and for the NATO operations it's mostly air assets so it's different but I think the comparison is striking and in some ways it could point to the future shape of France's priorities not only its military footprint in the African Sahel which is clearly not what it was and is going to be shrunk even further further. But also, we've seen comments from President uh, Emmanuel Macron about NATO's shortcomings prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I think what the French have shown is that they are now fully committed, fully operational members of the alliance in a way that is particularly demonstrated on the alliance's eastern flank in Europe.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Sophie.
2: Thanks, Jason. Always good to talk to you.
1: I hope you caught the latest episode of the Weekend Intelligence, diving into a Swedish mind to see or hear up close some of the contradictions inherent in the world's green transition. What? You didn't? Well, go back right now and give it a listen. What? You're not a subscriber to Economist Podcasts Plus? Inconceivable! Head to the show notes right now and make that right. I'll wait. One of the hallmarks of the war in Ukraine is the widespread and novel uses of drones, many of them straight off the shelf consumer models. The prevalence of drones in the conflict in Gaza is no less a sign of technological change in warfare, but Israel is building on expertise that it's been developing for years.
3: Israel has a long history of military use of drones. In fact, they are one of the original drone superpowers.
1: David Hambling writes about technology and defence for The Economist.
3: They had a groundbreaking success in 1982 when they used drones to help destroy Syrian air defences with zero casualties of their own. And they've really been pushing the boundaries of drone technology for decades. And now we're seeing new sorts of drones being used in their offensive in Gaza.
1: So how are drones being used in Gaza, then?
3: Well, to some extent, we're seeing some of the usual type of large, high-flying, long-endurance drones, which are circling overhead to carry out persistent surveillance of the entire area. But what we're also seeing, which is new, is the use of much smaller drones for tactical situations, which can get very much closer to what's happening actually inside buildings and tunnels. Now, the IDF is not releasing any details of its operations, but the co-founders of Extend, which is an Israeli drone startup company that supplies the IDF, talked to the economists and they did confirm to us that their models are being used in Gaza. And while they weren't able to say anything directly, they were able to give a very good indication of the kind of things that their drones can be used for.
1: Go on then. What can they be used for?
3: So the smallest model they have is a drone called Extender, which is specifically designed for indoor and underground operations. And that's exactly the type of thing that's likely to be used inside Gaza City and in the tunnels underneath Gaza. Extender's got shrouded rotors, so that means it won't damage itself if it runs into walls or other obstacles. And mainly, it's got very smart software, which allows it to recognise objects and avoid collisions. So the operator doesn't have to be that skilled. Basically, the drone flies itself and manoeuvres around safely. Extender is able to carry what they call a breaching charge. That's a small explosive charge which can break down a door. So it can set the charge, move back, blow the door, and then go through into whatever is beyond.
1: And so that sort of small, nimble drone is, is kind of the main thing that's being used in Gaza now?
3: That's the main one that would be used for confined spaces, For larger spaces, they also have Wolverine, which is a larger drone, which is more of a cargo carrier. They say they've got dozens of different payloads that that can carry. That's typically things like sensors. One of the more interesting things it can carry is what's known as through-the-wall radar, which is a radar that can look through into the next room or through the the walls of a building and see if there are people inside. So that's extremely useful for detecting potential opponents so you don't get surprised. Wolverine can also carry a a gripping claw, which is used for picking up objects, and it can also place explosives to blow up explosive devices from a, a safe distance. And apparently wolverines are also sometimes used to create a diversion by dropping a stun grenade in one direction while troops advance from somewhere else. So really, there do seem to be quite a lot of uses for this type of technology in Gaza.
1: And we've talked to you before as something of a drone expert, drone aficionado, about how drones are being used in Ukraine. What differences do you see here between what's going on in Gaza and what's going on there?
3: In Ukraine, what we're seeing is the very large-scale use of what are basically domestic consumer drones, whereas in Gaza, what we've got are these Israeli-developed, much smarter drones, because the problem is mainly to do with communications in two ways. One is with communication with GPS satellites. Virtually all drones rely on satellite navigation to find their way. And in urban canyons where you've got tall buildings around you or actually inside buildings or underground, GPS stops working. And that's a real problem for most drones and you may lose signal altogether. In addition to that, Hamas are aware that the IDF used drones and They'll believe be jamming both GPS signals and radio communications. So how to operate drones if you can't communicate with them? One thing that Extend do is to have their drones working together to form a chain so that you communicate with one drone which communicates with the next drone and that communicates with the drone at the far end and that then allows you to carry on operating a drone which would normally actually be far outside the range of communication. The drones also have quite a high degree of onboard intelligence, so that if they do lose connection, they are able to carry out some aspects of their mission and return to the place where they can then connect to the operator via radio and communicate what they found. So that kind of intelligence makes the drones much easier to use, and that way the drone operator can focus on the bigger picture and whether the drone has found anything important, rather than looking in detail at the video feed all the time.
1: So it's clear that a lot of the development that's going on here is is what helps the soldiers, the operators. What about the effects that all of this tech has on the civilians who might be in the line of fire?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's very true. The designers are very much focused on the soldiers. Their aim when building these drones was to have something that would go in first. So you would never have to send a human or a dog, because the IDF also used dogs, into a building or a tunnel first. You could always send a drone in. And the idea is to keep the soldiers safer. The flip side, of course, is that it may not necessarily be an improvement for the civilians. Now, arguably, in some ways, it is. If a soldier bursts into a room and finds people there, he's only got a split second to make a life or death decision about whether he should shoot. Whereas if you send a drone in, there's much less at risk. And the worst case, the drone operator loses their drone. So that means there there should be much less shooting involved and it should give a much greater chance to recognise innocent people. However, one of the issues with these is that drones can now go places that they've never gone before and drone operators do make mistakes and this is well known even with big drones with lots of intelligence supporting them. They quite frequently kill the wrong people because bad decisions are made.
1: David, thanks very much for your time.
2: Thank you.
0: Crystals are
1: almost magical things. They can help align your chakras and heal what ails you. And, and, and this one here, you use it as a deodorant. Okay, okay, enough. I'm not talking about the crystals that part the gullible from their money in new agey shops. I'm talking in a science chemistry sense. Crystals are more of a description than a thing. Any structure made from lots of repeating patterns of atoms is crystalline, and crystals have found uses everywhere. From harvesting light in solar panels, to converting radio waves into sound. Even the silicon used in microchips and the covering of a decent watch face are crystals. The list goes on and on, and it looks set to get a lot longer.
4: Until recently, material scientists only knew about the existence of 48,000 different crystals with different chemical structures and chemical compositions.
1: Gilad Amet is a science correspondent for The Economist.
4: Now, the AI company Google DeepMind has used machine learning to scan existing libraries of chemical structures and predict new ones. And they've come up with about 2.2 million crystal structures, each of which they say is new to science.
1: 2.2 million structures that are at least conceivably possible or that exist in the world or, or what? 2.2
4: million crystal structures that they predict will exist and that science doesn't yet know about. And to test how accurate these predictions are, DeepMind collaborated with some scientists at the University of California, Berkeley, who chose 58 of these 2.2 million, tried to synthesize them in the lab, and claimed to be able to create 41 of those 58 in a little over two weeks. And there have also been other labs that have been working independently, which have created some 700 other crystals from this well of 2.2 million. So it'll take us a while to test all of those predictions, but so far, at least some of these shots in the dark have hit their target.
1: But to what end? 2.2 million crystals is, is the implication that all of them will be useful in some way?
4: So that's what DeepMind hopes. Some will be more useful than others. They've released a subset of this library containing some 380,000 structures that they claim are the most stable, most interesting, most likely to yield to to uses. And the range of applications is is really vast, considering how fundamental crystals are to modern life. They claim that in their 381,000, there are thousands of crystals that could display superconductivity, which is the resistanceless flow of electric current, which is extremely useful in constructing electrical grids. They claim to have several hundred potential conductors of lithium ions, which means they could be very useful in batteries for, say, electric vehicles. And just to give it a sense of the scale of the improvement in this field, if DeepMind's predictions are accurate, then the total pool of potential superconductors and lithium ion conductors will have increased tenfold or more than tenfold. So this is a significant injection of new crystal structures.
1: And that's just 380,000 or so out of that 2.2 million. The list is
4: long. And it's going to get even longer. Aaron Walsh, who's a material scientist at Imperial College London who works in this space, told me that he did some calculations to work out the total number of possible crystals that could be made from four different chemical elements. And just that category of crystals could have tens of trillions of elements. And there's nothing stopping crystals being formed from five chemical elements or six. So you can see that the numbers add zeros at a terrifying rate, which is why AI could be so useful.
1: And I suppose all of this is just one more example of how much the rule books and the recipe lists are changing in the face of AI when it comes to science.
4: That's absolutely right. I think lots of fields of science are already feeling the potential of AI, already exploring how much it can be useful. DeepMind has had big headline news in the last few years when it comes to protein folding and their alpha fold project came up with predictions for these folded protein structures for hundreds of millions of protein, which has been a massive advance the accuracy of those predictions is still being tested. But if they're right, this is really significant. And AI is also being explored in fields ranging from modeling the complex physics of nuclear fusion, which could be an incredibly valuable energy source in the future. And it's also being used by cosmologists to model universes in the lab, because of course, we only have one real universe that we can test. So if we want to run comparisons, we need to simulate them in the lab. It's a very exciting time for science and for science journalists.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Gilad. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. As we hurtle towards the end of 2023, we want to give a nod to the books that say something about our current moment. Do the words of Dante hint at the trouble with AI? Does conflict among Tolkien's hobbits predict modern warfare? What prophecies lie in the pages of Darwin's The Descent of Man? On a special Christmas show, our writers and editors are going to be discussing the books that they think have something to say about the world now. But we want your recommendations too. So send us an email at podcasts at com, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation...